cuts out a cancerous tumor so that life can be had, Father. That's what we're asking. That our comfort would not create so much noise that we wouldn't be able to hear the voice of God this morning as we open up the Word. And God, even if comfort is an idol, your Spirit has the authority to destroy it. So remove the distraction, crush the idol, so that we might stand before you and be changed and transformed. We want to see you high and lifted up. So Father, set our attention on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we do anything that has to pertain to the sermon. If you have served this country in any branch of the military, or if you are a first responder, please stand up. You may be seated. We thank all of the veterans in the house for their commitment, which is a lifelong commitment, by the way. Your enlistment may end, but once you're a soldier, once you're an airman, once you're a Marine, once you're a seaman, once you're a Coastie, you're always that. Space, yeah. So we thank you for that. On that note, like my time in the military kind of gave me the desire to lay this sermon introduction out the way that I've laid it out. Okay, when I was in the army, I was trained that you leave no man behind, no woman behind, and no child behind. And as we're getting ready to dig into a series on the parables, I've said this for the last two weeks and I'm going to say it this week, it would be naive of me to believe that everyone in the room is on the same page spiritually, that they have a grasp of the text of Scripture to the degree that they know who Jesus believed that he was, what the gospel is versus what the gospels are. And today we're going to talk about what is a parable, what are the parables, and how do we read the parables. And I want you guys to know that like, my heart's desire is that not one of you would be left behind. I don't care if you have no love for the Lord, but you're here. If you have a little bit of love for the Lord because you're a baby Christian, or if you got a whole lot of love for the Lord because you've been serving Him for your life. The goal is that no one in the room would be left behind because there is zero expectation that you should know something. It's my job as a teacher to teach well. And a good teacher recognizes that each student, each disciple, each apprentice in the room 
not only has a different learning style, but is at a different place in their life when it comes to knowing and understanding the character and the nature and the love of God. Amen? And so it is our job collectively to link arms and to move forward toward Jesus as we study his word, but to make sure that nobody is left behind. And when I say left behind, I mean confused. Asking themselves, what does that word mean? I don't know what that word means. What is this concept? I've never heard this concept. Maybe they aren't even aware that there is a physical world and a spiritual world. And these are all necessary things that we need to have at least an introductory grasp on if we're actually going to be able to know and understand and apply the teachings that are found in the parables. We talked about the word exegesis and how in a practical definition it means knowing about the whole so that you can better understand the particulars. If we are going to study the parables, which are particular portions of the narrative in the gospel, we should know about the whole gospel. That way we can better understand the particulars in the parables. Does that make sense? And we could zoom out from there. If we want to know the gospels in a holistic light, we should understand the epistles. And if we want to understand the epistles and the gospels, we're going to need to have some sort of a foundation in the text of the Old Testament because the New Testament doesn't exist apart from the Old Testament. In fact, everything that has been communicated in the New Testament is founded on and grounded on the Hebrew Scriptures, which is Genesis to Malachi. Amen? Amen. Okay. So, we are in a third like iteration of the introduction before we even touch the parables, okay? Last week I said, we're not going to touch the parables with a 10-foot pole. We turned to a portion of the scripture and Nathan said, that's a parable, Matt. And so I had to apologize and we had to move right through it, okay? In the first week, if you were not here, we asked the question, who did Jesus believe that he was? And we had to answer that question. Because what's the point of studying the parables if Jesus is a liar or if Jesus is a lunatic? I don't want to study the words, the teachings of a liar or a lunatic. Liars lead you astray and deceive you. And lunatics can not only deceive you, but they can manipulate you. Okay? What if Jesus was just a legend? Well, I mean, are we really going to study mythology on a Sunday morning? Why not read, you know, like Homer's Iliad? I mean, we, we've talked about this. It would be fun to study the Iliad. It's a great literary work of art. But it doesn't have the power to change me, and I want to be changed. Do you want to be changed? Yeah. Amen. But if Jesus is Lord if he's master, if he's savior of the world, and he believed that he was the savior of the world, and we believe that he was the savior of the world, that's really going to have a drastic way of informing our study of the parables, right? 
And so you have to answer the question, who did Jesus believe that he was? Now we surveyed each of the Gospels coming to the conclusion that Jesus believed he was the embodiment of Yahweh on earth. That means that Jesus is God. Okay? That the fullness of God dwelt in him bodily. We would agree with the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Colossae. So, because we came to that conclusion, we said the parables would be worth studying. The parables would be worth standing before, like we do a mirror, so that we might assess ourselves, and so that we might see what needs to change, and take steps, action toward changing it. Amen? Last week in our sermon, we asked the question, what was or what is the gospel? We identified that that was too broad of a question, so we had to narrow the scope. What is the gospel in a biblical sense? Then we had to answer the question, what are the gospels? And then we went through and we navigated how we read, i.e. how we study the text of Scripture, specifically the gospels. This week we're going to do something almost no different than next week. I'm sorry, no different than last week. And that is we're going to ask ourselves those three important questions in direct connection to the parables. What is a parable? What are the parables? Where are they located and how do we read the parables? Like I said, our hope is that if it's your first Sunday in the church, you're going to get the tools that you need so that when you show up on the job next week in the same seat you're seated in today, you're ready to work. Because if you show up on the job site with a tool belt that's empty, you're worthless. <laughs> At least the foreman's going to think that. And so's the crew. We don't want anybody here to be left behind. Each person is going to gain a set of tools today. All right? Amen. So to answer our first question, what is a parable? You see how we're not trying to figure this answer out alone? This is what the graphic teaches us. That we're going to answer this question in community. Okay? So the visual is intended to aid you in the way that you are thinking. So often in America, everything is individualistic. But the text itself was authored in a time and in a culture when life was communalistic. And so we need to ask this question in the community of the saints so that the Spirit-filled believers can come to the conclusion together. And I'm here to tell you we are not all going to agree on the particulars. That's one of the most wonderful things about the church. We don't fudge on the non-negotiables, but we glove up. I can't say the next thing. And we step into the ring <laughs> and we throw down. Why? Because our convictions inform the way that we carry out our faith in this life. Okay? And our convictions are grounded on the word. Okay? So we have to define the term parable. Now, I did what any other red-blooded American would do, I googled the word parable. Google, what does 
a parable. Hey, Alexis, what's a parable? <laughs> hey, Siri, what's a parable? And what do people with Android say? <laughs> you need a new phone. <laughs> the Android people are all saying, y'all took the mark, so just get on. <laughs> Say, hey, Google, there you go. Thank you, Max, for, I learned something new today. The Android user says, hey, Google. All right. So I did a quick Google search. So let's put it up. The Oxford Dictionary, when you Google the word parable, gives you a very practical and a very helpful definition. Not all dictionary definitions are helpful. We've discussed this. Sometimes they're very technical and you have to sit back and you kind of have to translate and interpret the definition. But this is a very practical definition. It's a noun, first of all, not Amy and not Callan because they're taking English 1301 in college right now. But what is a noun? Person, place, or thing. Say that? An activity or an idea. And then the verb would be the words used to describe carrying out the activity. And the adjective would be the description of it, right? Okay. So we have nouns, verbs, and adjectives. All right. So here we are. What does the dictionary say? It says, a parable is a simple story. A simple story. Used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. And this is what I really like. As told by Jesus in the Gospels. They haven't edited that part out yet. And for that, we're thankful. Thank you. We're awake. We're alive today. I was going to say something about that, and I'm glad that you did. How ironic that the definition is not supported by an example in the definition. And so you can see they're creeping away from the definition. Slowly but surely. So, linguistically, the term parable translates the Greek word parabole. You can see that down here on the etymological scale and how we get to Middle English or Modern English and we say, now parable. So, we have this simplistic definition, this practical definition of a parable. But I want to take us a little bit deeper this morning. And so I want to look at this term linguistically. And so we're going to look at what the lexicon says about that. Now we already described, for those of you who weren't here last week, we've already described, but we'll do it again. This is, in my opinion, the gold standard on the Greek language. I would encourage everybody to get a hard copy or a digital copy and to learn how to use it. It's an excellent tool when you're studying the Word of God. Now, for the sake of time today, we're going to focus on definition number two because it is most applicable to this morning's discussion and the series that we are going to begin to navigate our way through. If you have questions about definition number one, you can go back to the Jonah sermon series. You can watch sermon number five in the Jonah series where I dedicated an entire sermon to the typological 
understanding and application that is used in and throughout the scriptures. It is a form of prophecy that is usually unspoken that points to a future fulfillment. And if you're wondering why it's here in definition number one, it's because the term parable is used in the book Hebrews. But it's not used the way that Jesus used it in regard to short story. And so I just want to make you guys aware of that for all of the note takers who might want to jot that down and go home. Jonah sermon series number five is a great springboard into the topic. And then it's like Hebrews chapter nine is holy typological and Hebrews chapter 11 verse nine, I believe is an express example in the life of Abraham. Okay, but focusing our attention on definition number two, we read definition number two. Can someone, let's see, uh, Jackson, is he in here? No, he's downstairs. Jackson, I want you to stand up. Can you read definition number two loud and proud for the entire room? Varying? Thank you. Give him a hand. We include everybody around here. Thank you, Jackson. So what we can see from definition number two, because this is a little bit more technical, is that Jesus used parables in his teachings and that narratives, for those of you that don't know, is just a $20 word for stories. Okay? Jesus' stories vary in length. And here's the most important part. They are designed to illustrate a truth claim. And then in the rest of the definition, it tells you how he accomplishes that. What mode he uses to accomplish the expression of the parable. So narratives in the Gospels are important. Sometimes you hear pastors say narrative is not normative. That is an oversimplification. So don't always hold fast to that little maxim that you hear pastors say, narrative is not normative. We could sit down and we could look at many narratives in the text of Scripture that are normative. 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 What is normal? Yep. So they would say that what you read in the narrative is not normative. Like David was king and he had Uriah killed and he slept with Bathsheba and the baby died. That's not normative to a life of someone who is dedicated to or supposed to be dedicated wholly to Yahweh. Okay? Exactly. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean God approves of it. So we're getting practical this morning. Okay? This is good to know when we approach the parables. There's lots of behavior in the Bible that we should not recreate in our lives. Does everybody know that? <laughs> okay. I just <laughs> All right. So, last week I said a parable is a story with two levels of meaning where certain details in the story represent something else. I utilized the prodigal son as an example last week. 
And I said, two levels of meaning can be defined as the characters in the story, the father, the older brother, and the younger brother, representing other things, being symbols that point to other things, as well as the story itself teaching us a principle like grace and mercy and forgiveness are wonderful aspects in the lives we live as humans, right? And that we all desire grace and mercy and forgiveness. Okay. So that's an example of two-level meanings. Some people would say that the, if, if the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness is desired in this human life, they would say the other level of meaning would be how the Father represents God. And how the older brother represented the Pharisees. And how the younger brother represents everyone that wanders. But I gave a little pushback last week and I said, well, it's interesting that everybody always ascribes to the Father in the parable the role of God. Because in the narrative itself, the Son says, I have sinned against my Father and heaven. And so God, in the narrative, seems to be His own character to some degree. But that doesn't mean that the Father cannot symbolize Him as well. Okay? We're talking about how we interpret what it is that we read. Because knowing what is written and knowing what is written and what it means are two different things. So we're going to look at two different examples of two levels of meaning this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at verse 1 through 7. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They're talking about Jesus, by the way. So he told them this parable. Here Jesus is utilizing a parable. Notice the audience. It's composed of different groups of different kinds of people. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven, listen to this, over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Amen. So what do you think heaven is celebrating? The works that you do that are rooted in self-righteousness, pride, and ego or the fact that an actual sinner turns to God. Let's keep reading. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, same audience, same situation, same rabbi teaching. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, 
There it is. Look at those lines. Rejoice with me in the first section. Rejoice with me in the second section. I have found the coin that I had lost. Here it is, verse 10, just like verse 7. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over the one sinner who repents. Just in case you guys didn't catch it the first time, I want to make sure you hear it this time. When there's repetition, the author is drawing our attention to something that we should put our focus on. Amen? Two levels of meaning. Who does the shepherd and the woman represent in the story? God. What's the second level of meaning? Well, we could summarize both of these parables by saying we, the church, believe in the seeking love of God. It was on display in the parable, and it's on display more clearly in the one's life who's telling us the parable. Jesus, the man from Nazareth. The Son of God is telling us that He came to seek and to save the lost. And He's doing it through parabolic form, okay? Two levels of meaning. No different than the prodigal. Apply that same mode of thinking, interpretation to this portion of the text and approach it and do your best to come out with two levels of meaning. Parables. We're asking the question, what is a parable? Parables are fictional narratives. So if anybody's ever held the Bible up in their hand while they were preaching a sermon, and there's nothing fictional about this book. <laughs> They're actually wrong. Jesus told fictional stories. The only thing that's historically relevant about them is that at one point in his life he spoke them. But the content of the parables themselves are fictional. Now some people in here might be wanting to push back and be like, what about the rich man and the poor man? It's the only parable where Jesus used proper names. Well, you can't prove that it's not a parable. And you could look at me and you could say, well, you can't prove that it's not. (laughs) And I would say, well, there's pretty good arguments on the scholarly level, linguistically, that show that that parable is opened and closed just like every other parable. So why should we treat it any differently? It's just my opinion. But some people are going to argue that not all of the parables are fictional. When I teach us each parable through this series... My presupposition is that all of them are fictional in nature. Okay? You're more than welcome to disagree with me, but I want to be honest. That's where I'm coming from. Okay, I agree with Craig Blomberg, who writes that the parables are the most obvious examples of fiction in the New Testament. And I agree with Bill Mounts who notes that the parables employ fictitious characters to represent that which is real. So just because something is fiction doesn't mean it's not important. Okay? It's a teaching tool. 
that Jesus used to communicate to his original audience real truth claims, but he grounded them in fictional narratives. Are we learning what a parable is? Go ahead. Mm -hmm. That is exactly what it talks about. If you are smart enough, if you are indeed wanting to be a rabbi, wanting to understand, you better understand this story, kind of like, you should read into it, and that is why they are fictitious, but they point to a much deeper meaning that cannot and would not ever be expressed in a direct, this is how it is, statement. Amen. I hope you all heard that. If you were here for sermon number one, you would see in that sermon that Jesus did a much more beautiful thing than just show up on earth and be like, I am God, everybody. <laughs> he, didn't just, he didn't just do that. His words matched his lifestyle. And when you look at his words and when you look at his deeds in his life, he was the express fulfillment of the prophecies of old in real time and space. And so look, that's an excellent thing. We, in our modern Western culture, we're very direct people. Yo, your breath stinks, bro. Go brush your teeth. You know, but you would never, never hear that in the Near East or in the Middle East. You know, I love the, the stories that Art tells me about his time when he was in Japan and he was instructing pilots in the Japanese Air Force and how like... They are the furthest thing from, like, speaking directly to an issue, you know? Uh, there was a musical. Uh, can you tell, share that with us real quick, Art? Just as an example, if your neighbor is keeping you awake because the daughter's practicing the piano all hours of the night and you can't sleep, you don't say, hey, it's, uh, we couldn't sleep, your daughter was playing the piano. You would say, oh, I noticed that your daughter is getting really good at the piano. And then the other Yep. And so that's an excellent example of how culture needs to be understood if we're actually going to draw the precepts from the text. Okay, so Blomberg and Mounts are two examples of scholars who would say that the parables are fictional narratives. So what's our summary in our first question? What is a parable? Well, parables are a teaching tool. They're short stories, and stories can vary in length. Some are very short, and some are a little bit longer. Their purpose or their goal is to illustrate a truth claim, and this goal can be accomplished in a multiplicity of ways through comparison, simile, proverb, maxim, etc. So, having answered that question, we're going to ask our follow on question now where are the parables located? Now, this Go ahead, Art. I wasn't here last week. Did you talk about in Mark where the 
Yeah, the conceal and reveal thing, we haven't touched that yet, but we will when we, when, expressly when we focus on that parable. So what you're getting today in this study on the parables is like a drop in the bucket, okay? We're not going to touch form criticism. We're not going to touch redactional criticism. There's so many things that have to be at least kind of minimally understood if you want to like mine the depths of the parables but we can't touch all of it on a single Sunday. So that's a great question. When we tackle that parable, we'll talk about the reveal and the conceal. Yep. But yeah, that's a great point that even his closest disciples were like, why are you teaching in parables? Like, can't you just tell us plainly? <laughs> and Jesus is like, no. <laughs> to the one who has ears, let him hear. Okay, so we've, we've answered our first question. Now we're going to ask, where are the parables located? Now, I designed this question to be asked similarly to the way that I designed the question from last week's study, what is the gospel? Because last week we learned that the gospel is not, the word gospel is not unique to the Bible. Okay? And we talked about Rome's socio-political euangelion, their gospel, their good news, and then we talked about a biblical understanding of what is the gospel and where are the gospels located. And so I wanted to ask this question, where are the parables located? Because if I ask this broad question, someone could answer, let's go to the next slide, and they could answer with any one of these examples from the Old Testament. And they wouldn't necessarily be wrong because these are all parabolic stories in the Old Testament. That's right, there are parables in the text of the Old Testament. So we have to learn to narrow the scope of our question. Good students know how to ask the right questions. Last week in my, in my sermon, I mentioned a church historian. I couldn't remember his name, but I remember it today. Robert Gottfried. He works like very close with uh, R.C. Sproul in the ministry Ligonier. And if you, I said, if you asked R.C. Sproul who, this, the, who the greatest theologian was ever in the history of man, he would say Thomas Aquinas. And Robert Gottfried would say, R.C. Sproul is wrong, Thomas Aquinas was great, but Origen is better. And R.C. Sproul would say, no, Origen is not better. We burned him as a heretic. He can't be better than Aquinas. And Gottfried would respond with, Origen was the greatest theologian, not because of the conclusions that he came to throughout his life, but because of the questions that he learned to ask. And so good students know how to ask good questions, because good questions lead to great answers, okay? And so the, we've got to narrow the scope of the question, right? Where are the parables of Jesus found? That's the question that we should be asking, not where are the parables located, because we're going to be studying the parables of Jesus in this coming series. Now, the general scholarly consensus is that the parables of Jesus are located in the synoptic gospels. Okay, do we have a slide? Uh, go ahead to the next one. Here we go. This is from last week as well. Four Gospels, okay? Four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
are referred to as the synoptic gospels. John is outside of the synoptic gospels. So what does that teach us? Well, that teaches us that the gospel of John has no parables in it. Okay, so when we're asking the question, where are the parables of Jesus located? They're located in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now that's the general scholarly consensus. Some scholars on the fringe would argue that John's gospel has parables in it. And so I want us to look at John chapter 10. And I'm not going to read verse 1 through 21 in its entirety, but I want us to look at it together. So turn there in your Bibles. We'll just get to John chapter 10. Yep. Okay. Let's see how much of this we actually have to read to make the point. Starting in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know his voice. They do not know the voice of the stranger. This figure of speech, there it is, Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So verse 6 is key. This figure of speech. Let's go to the next slide. Scholars argue that this is a parable in John, the fringe scholars. But you'll notice that the term peroimia, right here in the transliteration, is a different word from parabole. And so technically, a linguistic argument can be made that this is not a parable. It's a metaphor. And then you would look at all of the statements that include metaphor. Look at verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. Is Jesus a six-foot piece of wood, three feet wide, two and a half inches thick? Yep. <laughs> yep. And so you can see that the translation team of that would argue that this is a parable. Look at uh, verse, verse 9. So, uh, I'm sorry, look at, is it verse 11? I am the good shepherd. But God is definitely not literally a herder of sheep. And Jesus was a carpenter himself. Peter was a fisherman, but remember what Jesus told Peter? Put down your nets. And then he said, I'm going to teach you to what? Be a fisher of men. Okay? So 
we've got to be able to decipher what is and what is not, or what may and what may not be a parable. So that would be one of the hard sayings of Jesus, right? A, a large majority of the crowd left because they were taking what he had to say literally when he spoke very directly. And so do you see how direct speech can be misunderstood, but a parable can actually bring clarity in the Middle East? Which goes back to what Dasha was saying. Culture dictates how one should communicate. When I go overseas to India, I'm not like, learn English already. <laughs> It's 2023. America's the greatest country. Learn our language. Let's... They'd be like, get out of here, you buffoon. You arrogant American. Get out. Right? So the culture is going to dictate how we communicate. And we need to know that when we come to the text. So look, let's go to the next slide. Here is where this term is used in the Bible. You can see that it's used four times in the Gospel of John and that it's used one time in 2 Peter. And at no point do the English translators teach us to read this term as a parable. It is a figure of speech, a figurative story. It is veiled language. And it is a true proverb. Okay? So if the English translators don't translate the term parable, it's probably an indicator that the Greek term parabole, the technical term, is not being used. And therefore, it's not a parable proper. Okay? So again, if someone comes to you and they're like, there are parables in the Gospel of John. Look at John Jeff and be like, hey, cool. I'm looking at the parables proper in the synoptics, and you're looking at a more general unfolding of the parables. It's not worth fighting over and dividing on, okay? Seek to understand their perspective and hope that they seek to understand yours. I'm asking you to understand my perspective by unveiling all of this because when we get ready to dig in, we're going to need to know where I'm coming from. Again, the expectation is not that you agree with me because I'm the pastor, the expectation is that you hear and that you critically think through what you hear and then you come to your own well-informed decision, okay? I don't know everything. Chances are I'm going to change my mind in 10 years on a bunch of this stuff anyways. That's what sanctification looks like. How would you define the difference between a parable and a proverb? So I would say a proverb is a wisdom saying, okay? Shorter, yeah. Um, there are extended proverbs. You know, hey, my son, be wise, embrace my wisdom, and he goes on to explain what that actually looks like. And then there are proverbs like, don't answer a fool according to his folly, answer a fool according to his folly, right? And so you're like, ah, so the proverbs are wisdom sayings, and a maxim is like a short, pithy saying, okay? And so that's a great question. Okay, so... We're moving our way through. We're finding out that the parables proper, the parables which Jesus spoke, are located in the synoptic Gospels. We noticed that in John, Jesus was using metaphor. 
I am the door. I am the good shepherd. So the summary to answering question number two, where are the parables located, is in a general sense in both Old and New Testament, but in a very specific sense with a direct focus, they're in the synoptics. What have we learned? Be specific in our line of questioning. Why? Because good students know how to ask good questions because good questions, they get great answers. Okay? The general consensus is that the parables are in the synoptics, but we are going to meet people in and throughout the church who are going to argue that, God, that in the Gospel of John, parables can be found. So here we come to the meat of this morning's sermon. How do we read the parables? How do we read the parables? And again, this question requires interpretation because I would say, how do we interpret the parables? Because knowing what it says and knowing what it means are two different things. Saints, we need to know this, that throughout the history of the church, the parables have suffered the fate of misinterpretation second only to the book of Revelation. That means that there's a whole lot of ink spilled on this topic and very little finds agreement with one another. And we need to be aware of that. Because even though we think we know something, over time, the more we study it, the greater understanding we gain. Certain things will fall off and other things will be picked up. Okay? So we're going to talk about two examples, two examples throughout church history of misinterpretation. There is extreme allegorization of the text. There is what's called extreme allegorization of the text. And the church fathers were wonderful at this. Allegorization. So to allegorize something is to like have a, it's like that two meaning in a level. So the story uses a character, like in the book Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, his name is an identifier that he is representative of all who are followers or disciples of Jesus. And Christian is traveling along the way. And he gets lost along the way, which is like sinning, moving to the right or moving to the left, everything. He comes to the slough of despondence. And it's like this creek that like he steps in and he gets stuck in. And he's like sinking. It's like quicksand. And every Christian who's reading the book is going, oh, I get stuck in the slough of despondence so often in my life. We know exactly what the author's saying. And then all of a sudden, help comes along. And he, Pilgrim is like uh, up to his neck, you know, Christian is like up to his neck. And he's like, ah, help. And then the character help comes along. And he's like, Whoosh, take my hand. And each character and each principle in the story that is being allegorized represents something in our real life, okay? Is that helpful? Okay. So the parables have suffered misinterpretation of extreme allegorization. Let's look at a couple examples here, okay? Augustine. He did some really good things, and then he did some things like this, okay? All of us are in good company with the church fathers. <laughs> All right? 
He takes the good Samaritan and he starts to ascribe to every single thing in the parable a mysterious meaning that only the church could actually understand. And this goes back to Art's question. What is revealed and what is concealed? The man going down to Jericho, Augustine argues, and he's got a great commentary. You could read it. It's Adam from Genesis. What? I mean, you should be laughing already. Like, why, if Jesus wanted to talk about the historical Adam in Genesis, he would just talk about Adam. Okay? Jerusalem is the heavenly city from which Adam fell. The robbers are the devil and his angels. When the robbers beat and stripped him, they took away his immortality. You see how he's chronicling the fall of humanity in the parable of the Good Samaritan? And it's kind of like, is that really what Jesus is teaching in the parable? Because I'm pretty sure the whole point is to love your neighbor. He's like off track here. Beating him is persuading him to sin. Let's go to the next slide. The priest and the Levite are the priesthood and the ministry of the old covenant. The Samaritan is Christ himself. But he's from the tribe of Judah. Binding the wounds is binding the restraint of sin. The inn is the church. The church doesn't even exist yet. And how could the innkeeper be the apostle Paul? At this point, if he's alive, he's Saul from Tarsus. Hater of Jesus. So extreme allegorization is a problem. Let's go to the next slide. Here's, a, here's an example from the prodigal son. The ring that the father puts on the son, that's Christian baptism, everybody. The banquet is the Lord's Supper. The robe, oh, he put on the robe. Wait, wait, wait. Couldn't the robe be the Holy Spirit, though, too? Couldn't it be newness of life in this life and not immortality or the Holy Spirit? Aren't we put to death in a life like Christ and raised to life in a a life like Christ? Like, not everybody's going to agree on what these things are, which is why there's a problem. The shoes, this is my favorite. They're preparation for the journey to heaven. (laughs) You can't walk to heaven. It's otherworldly. So extreme allegorization. You see when we say the parables have suffered misinterpretation for so long? This is about as early as it gets with well-written commentaries on the text that have survived to our time. Seldom could two interpreters and their interpretations on the same parable agree. So extreme allegorization is a problem. And we already, I already highlighted the anachronism. Look, at this point, Christian baptism, it's not happening when Jesus is telling this story. So it cannot be. That would be reading a future reality back into the text. That's problematic. And the Lord's Supper, they haven't taken the Last Supper where Jesus says, this is now the blood of my covenant when he's telling this parable. Okay? So those kinds of things can't Exist. Jim, did you have a question? I uh, just came to mind, would you say that transubstantiation is a form of extreme allegorization? 
Uh, I think that transubstantiation is actually more rooted in what John chapter 6 is uh, communicating when they talk about the literal eating of the blood of the flesh and the literal drinking of the blood. And I think that over time, yeah, that evolved into what was literally spoken of in John chapter six is spiritually happening in the, the essence of the table. And so for, for those of you who do not know what transubstantiation is, the Roman Catholic church believes that when you participate at the table, when you eat and drink, the elements actually turn into the body and the blood of Christ. Okay? So, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, it, it could be different from my perspective, but that would be my take on it. Okay, so we're talking about the issues here with extreme allegorization, okay? There's anachronism, and interpreters are going to say certain things mean certain things, and then other interpreters are going to say, no, they mean this, and there's going to be a lot of disagreement. So fast forward now from the early church to the 19th century. Anybody ever seen a pendulum swing? Overcorrection. Let me ask Kendall. When you're flying in a plane and something is off, do you just grab it and be like, yeah? Or is it very, very, uh, is it very important that every movement is micro in the corrections that you make? Overcorrections can make the situation worse. Thank you. So we saw the pendulum swing in the 19th century. Let's, let's take a look at, at what happened in the 19th century with modern scholarship rejecting allegorical interpretation, arguing that each parable makes only one point. Here it is. Adolf Hilichter, I think in German. I don't have a very good German accent. He argued he's a German uh, liberal theologian. Again, for the time that he was alive, being uh, classified as a liberal theologian wasn't a bad thing, okay? He argued that the parables are in no way allegories. So he's actually going to stand at the podium and he's going to say Augustine was wrong, entirely wrong in everything that he did that included allegorization. And any other church father, in fact, every biblical interpreter who precedes me was wrong. That's what he's saying. And that no details stand for anything else. Thus, such stories as the prodigal son can be reduced to the lessons of boundless joy in connection to God's forgiveness. Each parable, everybody, according to these interpreters, is that one point and one point only, and you must not allegorize anything. Ah. Are either of these extreme positions helpful? I want you to have that question in the back of your mind. Are either of these extreme positions helpful? I would argue that we here at Cross and Anchor need to be a people who are comfortable with existing in the tension. We are a people of the middle ground here. Okay? We're asking the question, how do we read the parables? Some interpreters say allegorize everything. Others say allegorize nothing. And each parable makes a single point. And I'm going to say, we're going to fall somewhere smack dab in the middle of that. Why are we going to do that, saints? Well, how about we open up our Bibles and find out, amen? All right. 
We need to learn that the all or nothing mentality must be avoided. We're about to learn that the early church's interpretations are not simply problematic because they allegorize, they're problematic because of the extent they allegorize to. So we're going to learn right now that the early church's interpretation is not problematic because they allegorize. It's problematic because of the extent that they take their allegorization to. Okay? I'm actually going to argue against Adolf's position while not truly embracing the early church's position either. Okay? And we're going to look at the Bible to confirm that this is actually the thing that we should do. It's my opinion that the pendulum swing was bad, overcorrections make things worse, and that we should be able to identify three-point and two-point and one-point parables in how Jesus teaches in his communication. And when we find three-point parables, we should look for three points, one connected to each main character. Two-point, one-point, and so on and so forth, okay? We don't want to say that the parable of the prodigal son only teaches about the boundless joy of forgiveness and not actually learn the lesson that we can from the older or the younger brother because that one point focuses solely on the father's character and nature. And we're going to lose so much if we argue for a single point of interpretation. So let's take our cues from Jesus. You guys good with that? Mark chapter 4. Let's look at verse 3 through 9. Mark chapter 4. Verse 3 through 9. Okay, listen. Linda, listen. That's the Matt, you know, paraphrase right there. <laughs> Behold, a sower went out to sow. And he sowed some seeds. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it out, and it yielded no grain. Other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's skip to verse 13 through 20. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Stop. Is Jesus saying that this parable is the key to unlocking the lock of every other parable that he teaches? Some are going to say yes. Some are going to say no. You're going to have to make your decision. How literal are you going to take Jesus here? What happens if you weren't present for this teaching, but you were present for the next teaching, and you missed this parable, but he told another parable. Would you need to hear this parable to understand the future parable? So let's think logically through this. Okay? So we have to ask the question, what does he mean? Now when we study this, we'll get to that. 
The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones who are sown on the rocky ground. And the ones, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word out. And it proves unfaithful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. We got the answers. What are they? The seed is what? The Word of God. The four soils are what? Different kinds of people. The birds represent Satan. And the thorns stand for the cares of what place? This world. Call me crazy. But is Jesus using allegory in his own interpretation of this parable? This is the parable to the, to the 12 disciples. This is a parable. Yeah. But no, he's talking to the 12. He's defining the 12. He's, 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 no, no, he's, he's giving a follow-on teaching to the 12. Yeah, no, that's a, Yeah. Oh, Mark chapter 4. Oh, well, well when, yeah, we're in a way we're, yeah. So I, Nathan's caught me twice, last week and this week. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to, we're not exegeting it today. We're just looking at it and we're asking certain questions, right? The question that we're asking is how do we read the parables? Now you saw one interpreter say allegorize nothing. But Jesus himself is allegorizing in the word of God. He's saying these things in my story have expressed connection to the things of this world. And so when we read Adolf's biblical interpretive mode of coming to the text, I would say, man, yeah, kick that out of here. If you have a, a pastor, a preacher, a teacher who says don't allegorize a single thing in the parables, take him to Mark chapter 4 and say, but Jesus does. Jesus is doing it right here. How do you expect me to not do the very thing Jesus is doing? Let's go to Matthew. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13 real quick. We don't want to proof text ourselves into a corner with a single example, although I would argue the Bible only needs to say something once for it to be true. Matthew chapter 13. Let's look at 24 through 30. He put another what before them? He put another parable. If you look at the Greek text, this is going to be the word parabole, not parabolamia, or whatever that other Greek term was. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among them and went away. So when the plants came up and, the, and bore grain, the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you, then do you want us to go and gather them? 
But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let's both, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, skip to 36 through 43. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are his angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. We can stop there. Let's go to the, oh, here we are. Happy the same thing that happened to you earlier just happened to me. That's right. Can you guys help me fill in the blanks here? Looking at the parable, 36 through 43, what do we see? Next. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. What about these last two? The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed the seed is the devil. So again, we're looking and we're asking ourselves the question, does Adolf have a good hermeneutic when it comes to studying the parables? No, he doesn't. Because Jesus, again, is taking his own parable and he's saying, look, the allegorical interpretation points to this in the world that you live in. So the pendulum and its swing into modernity was an overcorrection. And I would say that overcorrection actually does more harm to the church's handling of the text than the church fathers. But I would also say beware. Don't extremely allegorize everything because then you will miss the point of the parable in its entirety. No different than Augustine did. Or you're going to end up in an argument with another interpreter over what symbol actually represents what in the world. And that's not the point of Jesus' teaching. We do not need to reject allegorical interpretive methods. Why? Because the Gospels give us an express example of Jesus using it. By definition, this is the only method the gospel writers ever portray Jesus using. So when Jesus interprets his parables expressly, this is the only mode of interpretation he gives. So I'm going to go with Jesus and not with Adolf. All right? A logical middle ground position recognizes that allegorizing one detail, listen to this, allegorizing one detail does not commit an interpreter to allegorizing all of the details. So if someone tries to pin you down, if you're going to allegorize this, you might as well allegorize the rest of it. No, no, that's not what Jesus did. 
Jesus gave express examples of what things point to. And it's our job, like it was his listener's job, to identify what those things are and to understand them. Amen? So how should we read the parables, saints? Well, I would say we should read them slowly and carefully. How often do we go, oh, I got five minutes to read my Bible today. And that's great, by the way. We talked about this last week, five minutes a day on something that you don't know in 10 years accumulates to a whole lot of new information. Okay? But slowly reading something and carefully reading something is different than just... Thank you, Jesus. Check the box, amen. (laughs) When you read a parable, make a habit of reading it more than once. Okay? When you read it, read it with attention to detail. Anybody here? I already asked all the veterans to stand up. So all of the veterans hear that phrase, attention to detail, and they just kind of go, inside. But it's important. This is key and crucial when you want to read the text in its context. Listen, you need to identify the situation. Why is Jesus telling the parable? And even more importantly, to whom is Jesus telling the parable? Is he telling the parable to his close disciples? Is he speaking to the larger crowds? Or is he addressing his opponents? Because he tells parables in all of these contexts. And we want to ask the question, what caused Jesus to tell this story? And when you want to ask that question, the best way to answer it is to look at his audience. It's extremely doubtful that the parables of Jesus were intended for his inner circle only. It's extremely doubtful. Okay, how do we know that it's extremely doubtful? Well, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan to the Pharisee, the one who specialized in the law. Oh, and he understood it. He absolutely understood it. Luke chapter 10. Let's look at verse 36 and 37. He asks him at the end of the parable, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said the one who showed mercy. Let's just pause right there. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan. Jews hated the Samaritans. Jesus is telling a story that involves a Samaritan. And when it comes time for this man to give a response to who was most neighborly, he says, the one who showed him mercy. That's that's the right answer, but it's a terrible way to answer the question. He should have said the Samaritan. You're willing to use the word rabbi to teach me a principle, 
Therefore, I will lay down my hate for this group of people. And the first sign of the evidence that need be displayed for the public that I lay down that hate is the fact that I will use the term Samaritan. Called him the one. I'd also argue that others who were outside of Jesus' disciples could understand the parables, and we could find that answer in Matthew chapter 21. Let's look at 33 through 46, but for the sake of time, we're just going to look at verse 45. Matthew 21. Thirty-three through forty-six, and expressly, we're going to look at verse five, verse forty-five, twenty-one. Listen to this: When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his what? Is that singular? Ah, that's plural. So they weren't just uh, talking about this express parable that he was telling. But the parable's plural, because they were around for a whole lot of Jesus' teachings. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables plural, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Oh, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. So how should we read the parables, saints? Well, we should read them together as a community. Why? Because when I have a blind spot, one of you is going to point it out. And when you have a blind spot, I'm going to point it out. Or someone else in the room is going to point it out. So we should read the parables together. The parables were never spoken in isolation. That would have done no good. And since the parables were never spoken in isolation, they should not only be read in isolation. Don't just study the parables on your own thinking that you're going to grasp the entirety of them. Get into a small group like Happy was saying. Read the Bible together. And then say, hey, What do you think this means? And why do you think it means that? The beauty and the nature of the parables is that we're going to learn this throughout our study. They call all who hear to the point of radical decision. We said this about the Gospels last week. When you read and study the Gospels, and when you read and study the particulars in the Gospels, like the parables, They're going to force you, whether you like it or not, to a point of radical decision. Discipleship or rebellion. That's it. And I'm going to tell you from the pulpit, there's no such thing as sitting on the fence with Jesus. There's no such thing as sitting on the fence with Jesus. You can audit Christianity all you want, but while you're auditing Christianity, you are outside of the kingdom. It's my hope that as we embark on our study together through the parables, we will be confronted as a family with the reality that the knowledge alone is worthless. I don't care if you can memorize and retell every parable and all you have simply is head knowledge. Because head knowledge is worthless until it translates into a level of understanding which gives action, which gives birth to action. That's the Pharisees' problem. Jesus is telling the parables in their presence. 
He's telling the parables in their presence. And it causes them to do nothing but get angry and seek to destroy him. When he tells the parables, and the audience is vast, it's almost like they could care less what he's saying as long as you're going to break that bread and multiply that bread and break that fish and multiply that fish, that's what I'm here for. And Jesus is like, no. That's not what I'm telling you the story. That's not why I'm feeding you the food. The food is so, you, so that you can sit and listen. And when you listen, you can make a decision. That's what Jesus wants. Jesus wants a decision from you. I want to be like David in my life. When Nathan the prophet came to David, what did Nathan do? He told him a story. And at the end of the story, David said, I am that man. And from what I can tell, in 1 and 2 Samuel, David goes straight into the tabernacle. And he hugs the altar. And he's weeping, God, forgive me. Don't punish my son. And he's worshiping the Lord. And the Lord takes his son. And David is not like a Pharisee who hardens his heart. He stands up. He cleans himself off. He takes a bath and he says, give me some food. And everyone, everyone is blown away. They can't believe it. You couldn't eat while your son was alive. You can eat now. He's like, oh, well, my son was alive. I could intercede and I could advocate and I could ask, Lord, spare my child. But now that my child has not been spared, I know that he will not come to me, but I will go to him. That's how we want to respond to the parable, saints. We want to hear the parables, and like I prayed this morning, we want to be cut to the heart like the men at Pentecost, and like David who was confronted by the prophet Nathan, Lord, change me. I am a man of filthy lips, unclean hands in the midst of a filthy and unclean people. And I need you, Lord, to take something from your world and touch it to me so that I can be purified. And that something from another world was made manifest in someone in our world. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And he went to the cross so that his blood could atone for your sin so that you could be made pure before God. The parables are about the kingdom, yo! initiated and inaugurated in the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we are waiting for the consummation of the kingdom where he will return in his glory and honor the saints and shame the wicked. But in the interim saints, 
We need to be a people who respond to the parables like David. I am that man. And I need someone to do something for me that I am incapable of doing. Amen? Are we excited to study the parables? I'm excited to study the parables. Every story is going to be like a club to a piece of fruit. Smash! And it's going to be my life's goal week after week for this series to have everybody leaving this room not being like, hey, that was a great sermon. Feel great. But almost like stoic and solace. grace and the mercy of God. I can't even fathom it. I don't deserve it. And yet he saw me and he said, that one right there is worth it. I'm going to do it. The parables are about the kingdom of God. If I do these miracles in your presence by the power of God, then the kingdom is where? In your midst. We are in the kingdom age, saints. And it's time to recognize that. More importantly, it's time to start living like it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Without your word, Father, we would be lost because we would have no way to know your character and your nature. We would have nothing to teach us the story of your glory, God. And how throughout humanity's history, your righteous right arm has been redeeming people from day one. And so, God, we turn to you with our whole heart and our whole mind, with every fiber in our being, and we say yes and amen to the finished work of Christ alone. Help us to live lives where we are vigilant. Help us to live lives where we are diligent. Help us live lives where we strive to tear down idols so that we can wholly be dedicated to you. God, we want to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we lack the capacity to do that without your spirit. So we thank you for sending your spirit into the world. We thank you for giving us your spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And Lord, help us to be a people who are salt and light in this world. We love you. And we love you because you first loved us. So we say thank you this morning for all that you have done, all that you are currently doing, and all that you will do. We are humbled to stand before you and cry, Abba, Father.
Thank you, Jesus. Amen.